And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Jack Tenney. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And hope everyone enjoyed our last episode, where I was joined by Christopher Wollett and Jeremy Robinson from the Beware of Monsters podcast, as we took a look at the South Korean film The Host. Very uh, very good film, and I think a very good podcast. Had a lot of fun talking to those guys. Also, just recently came out was, of course, uh, the latest Gaiden, where I gave some quick thoughts on uh, the crew over at Rift Tracks doing a live event covering the classic Toho film Mothra from 1961. First chance for uh, for me personally to see a Showa Toho film on the big screen. Uh, very cool. Well, we are not in the Showa era tonight, but we are going to be talking some Toho. We have uh, a little film called Godzilla Against Mechagodzilla, a.k.a. Godzilla X Mechagodzilla from 2002. So we are squarely right in the middle of the millennium era of the Godzilla films. We're also going to be taking a look at the next issue of the Marvel Comics uh, Godzilla series. And uh, that should be a lot of fun as well. The series has been, uh, it's been something else so far. But uh, before we get into that, I'd like to do a little bit of news first. Uh, since our last recording, Shin Gojira has opened in Japan. It opened up on the 29th of July, and it opened up with a opening weekend box office of about $6.1 million, which is 23% higher than the legendary Godzilla opened in Japan in 2014, and triple the opening weekend of Godzilla Final Wars from about a decade earlier. Now, that is not adjusted for inflation. But it's a considerable jump nonetheless. Uh, it's had very positive reviews. Um, we haven't had any additional news other than uh, about the U.S. release from Funimation, other than that the title, the official international title of the film is still Godzilla Resurgence. However, uh, Funimation is now saying that when they do engagements of the film here in the United States, it will be under the title Shin Godzilla. Now, this apparently comes at the request of Toho. And if I could play armchair analyst here for a minute, which I guess if you think about it, that's kind of what we do in general on the podcast. But anyway, what I'm guessing is that the use of the name Shin Godzilla here in the U.S. is reflective of the fact that there's a lot of equity built into that Shin Gojira. I think they've done a good job of marketing that. Uh, There's been a lot of buzz online about it. I keep seeing people sharing images of the Shin Gojira suit. So I think calling it Godzilla Resurgence, that sounds like it might be maybe a separate project. People might not associate that with Shin Gojira, you know, which they've seen online. So I'm, I'm down with it. I mean, I've been calling it Shin Gojira anyway, so calling it Shin Godzilla is, is no problem for me. Either one, you know, I mean, I know the difference. I mean, heck, I still call it Godzilla's Revenge, and apparently I'm supposed to call it All Monsters Attack, which, let's face it, that's not happening. I'm never going to be able to do that. Now, in a related note, Toho has announced the follow-up to Shin Gojira, which is going to be an 
anime film simply titled Godzilla. Now, this is interesting on two fronts. Now, we've had some anime stuff with Godzilla recently. Uh, the Godzilla, Neon, Genesis Evangelion kind of crossover film, which is more like a short, really. Uh, but this is a the first that we've seen a full-length anime for Godzilla. And also, the Japanese title is Godzilla, not Gojira. The, the little promo image that they released here, it says Godzilla in English. And it says 2017, so we don't have anything uh, beyond that. Uh, the film is being done at Polygon Pictures. The director is uh, Koban Shizuno. And uh, that animation studio and that director, they worked on Knights of Sidonia. And I'm not familiar with this, but I've heard some good things about Knights of Sidonia. Uh, so it uh, should be interesting to see the development on this. You know, it, it's kind of interesting if we get to a Godzilla film in 2016 and then one in 2017 from Toho, could they be getting back on an annual release schedule as they traditionally did for a long time? You know, much of the Showa era, a good portion of the Heisei and Millennium eras were annual installments. So maybe this is a way to do it without having to do a tokusatsu every time. You know, maybe do a tokusatsu, then an anime, then go back to do a tokusatsu afterwards. But be, again, interesting to see how this will develop. And, and any new news on this front, we'll report it here just as soon as uh, I become aware of it. Now, in Ultraman news, uh, Ultraman's having a bit of a resurgence. Ultraman Orb is going strong. It's available uh, to uh, to stream right now on Crunchyroll if you have the app or if you subscribe. Uh, actually, if you don't, not even if you subscribe. If you have the app, you can get it uh, on a week delay from when it's simulcast, but you're still getting it. Um, there's been a series of Ultraman films. Over the last few years, so we got Ultraman Ginga S the movie, Ultra Fight Victory, and Ultraman X the movie. All three of these are getting new English dubs from Subaraya Productions. Uh, and it's being done by William Winkler Productions. Now, if that name rings a bell, you may remember a few years ago, there was a whole slew of Toei animated series that had new English dubs for compilation films. Uh, organized by Tawai by William Link Winkler Productions, including in that were the Super Robot shows uh, Dangard Ace and Guy King, and then also Star Zingers also. And those were basically they took the series and cut them down into three compilation films that tell us the whole story of the series and then released them. I have all those on DVD, and we, we will cover those eventually, but those are down the road a bit. Maybe do a crossover with the anime freaks, get uh, Gene and Dr. Bill on here to talk some giant robot anime. Uh, but the question now becomes, okay, what does this mean as far as a release in English? Uh, no unofficial release has been announced for any of these films, although uh, Ultraman X the movie did get screened at the Fantasia convention, um, uh, that, I want to say last year, but that's up in, that's up in Canada. Um, so could these be for release through maybe Shout Factory, or could they be preparing for a theatrical run? We don't know. Um, I know that I would really like to see these because, uh, obviously, I'd really like to see those films and see them in an official English translation. Uh, the William Winkler group, I think they do a real good job with the, uh, the, the dubs of theirs that I've been privy to. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd very much like to see it. So, again, not much information at this time. Once we find out some more, I'll definitely pass it along. Hat tip to Sci-Fi Japan for the information on this one. 
one last thing, IDW is starting a new Godzilla miniseries. This one is called Godzilla Rage Across Time. And much like Godzilla Goes to Hell, this is going to be done by different creative teams on each issue. And uh, the gimmick this time is that it's going to place Godzilla and the other uh, Toho Daikaiju pantheon in different eras in history. And so it's going to be a five-part miniseries, but essentially like five one-shots is what I'm probably uh, figuring it's going to be. But still looks very cool. I've really enjoyed most of the IDW output for Godzilla. They've been, as far as I'm concerned, very good stewards of the license once we got past that really poor initial um, Kingdom of Monsters series. So very much looking forward to this. So uh, check it out in previews. I said it's Godzilla Rage Across Time Bomb IDW. Uh, that's about all the news I have right now. If you have any uh, Daikaiju related or monster related news items you'd like uh, to spread around or if you come across, go ahead and send me an email at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com and I will put it on the show. So I'm going to take a quick break right now and we're going to come back and take a look at Godzilla against Mechagodzilla. Hurt and can't work? Call the law offices of Turner, Conroy, and Finkelstein, 555-double-lot-double-lot. In a wreck and need a check? Call the law offices of Turner, Conroy, and Finkelstein, 555-double-lot-double-lot. Blood won't come out of the carpet? Call the law offices of Turner, Conroy, and Finkelstein, 555-double-lot-double-lot. Turner, Conroy, and Finkelstein helped me cut through all the red tape with getting disability. Now I'm getting my check. I'm not hurt. I just didn't feel like working no more. Thanks, Turner Conroy and Finkelstein. For all your legal and illegal needs, call the law offices of Turner Conroy and Finkelstein, 555-double-ot-double-ot. Not licensed to practice law in any state or the District of Columbia. Turner Conroy and Finkelstein is a wholly owned subsidiary of Biscuit Basket Consolidated Brands Incorporated. The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that tastes forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway... Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2 in 1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? Okay, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Today we're going to be taking a look at Godzilla against Mechagodzilla, which was released in December of 2012 in Japan. Pretty sure you mean 2002, you goofball. Under the title Gojira X Mechagojira, of course translates to Godzilla X Mechagodzilla, abbreviated as GXMG. You will find a lot of... Uh, a lot of Godzilla fans will call this film GXMG or Godzilla X Mechagodzilla, the against name uh, I'm assuming is primarily done to distinguish it from the U.S. Um, title or the current, excuse me, the current international title for the first Showa Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla film, which was called Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster for a long time here in the States, is now officially 
uh, titled Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, same way that the Heisei Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla is now called Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla 2, just to confuse things. So, so for our purposes, I always refer to this film as Godzilla X Mechagodzilla or GXMG. Uh, GXMG was directed by Masake Tezuka. The writer was Wataru Mimura. Music was by Michiro Oshima. Special effects by Yuichi Kikuchi. The story starts in Tatayama, Japan in 1999. The coast is suddenly struck by a massive typhoon, but hidden under the tempest waves, boiling mist and inky darkness is a shadow from the past. A member of Godzilla's species awakens and attacks. The anti-Megalosaurus force, created in 1966 to contend with monsters such as Godzilla, is dispatched. This force arrives with Type 90 Mazer cannons. During the battle, tragedy suddenly strikes when heroine Akane Yashiro accidentally rams a jeep into a ravine with her Mazer cannon vehicle. Godzilla steps on the disabled jeep and Akane's personal vendetta against Godzilla begins. To deal with the revived threat of Godzilla, a robot is built around the recovered bones and spinal cells of the first Godzilla, which attacked in 1954. It is finished in three and a half years, and in that time, Akane, who has been punished with a desk job position, is training to make a comeback. She is chosen to become one of the pilots of Kiru, the name for this new Mecha Godzilla. She is to pilot the robot remotely from the AC-3 White Heron support vehicle. Finally, the world is shown this new creation, and coincidentally, Godzilla emerges at the same time. Kiru is sent on its first mission, and after it engages Godzilla with rockets, missiles, and all other sorts of weapons, seems to have the King of Monsters retreating. But Godzilla's roar sets off a memory recorded deep in Kiru's spinal tissue. Kiru, in essence, becomes Godzilla, and it runs amok until its power is depleted after an hour, at which point it shuts down. The future of the Kiru project comes under immediate scrutiny, but when Godzilla once again attacks... The Prime Minister is convinced that Kiru is Japan's best chance. Kiru goes into battle once more. It fights with unmatched ferocity and finally is able to disable Godzilla long enough to ready and hopefully fire its main gun, the Absolute Zero Cannon, an ultimate weapon which freezes matter at the atomic level. Just before the beam can fire, though, Godzilla shoots off his atomic breath and knocks Kiru over. The cannon misfires and destroys three buildings completely. Kiru's energy is depleted, and with all the power from the local plants being fed into Kiru in order to revive it, it becomes necessary for Kiru to be controlled manually, and Akane is dropped off to pilot the disabled robot from within. With Kiru back to full power, Akane manages to ram it into Godzilla and clamp shut the monster's fire-breathing mouth and uses the absolute zero cannon at point-blank range. Godzilla survives the attack, but retreats for now. Kiru's energy is depleted, and the cannon can be not, cannot be used again at the moment. The battle ends in a stalemate. There is no true victor, but despite it all, Japan now knows that it has a weapon to contend with Godzilla. Kiru. 
And I'd like to give a thank you to ToeKingdom.com who provided uh, that synopsis. That is from a review on their site of the film by Miles Imhoff. So thank you very much to Toho Kingdom and to Miles Imhoff for that synopsis, which I think does an excellent job of uh, covering the events of this film. Now, I like this film quite a lot. I remember um, this was one that coming after GMK... Uh, a lot of folks at the time were kind of down on it because it's like, oh my God, we're getting Mechagodzilla again. We just got him not even 10 years ago. In 1993, we got a new Mechagodzilla. Why do we need another one? And what I think this film does a very good job of doing, much like GMK did, was differentiating itself from other films featuring the same monster and uh, really giving the, the Kiru, giving Mechagodzilla, a lot of personality. Now, it's not perfect by any, uh, by any stretch, but I really do enjoy this film quite a lot. So let's get right into the notes. Now, we see Godzilla and the Mazer Tank within the first four minutes of this film. It's very Showa in a sense like that because it's giving you something right up front to kind of tease you that, hey, come on, we're, we got monsters, we got mecha. Now, it's not just a tease because there's a, the, the beginning of this film, kind of the prologue, the 1999 set piece. It's an excellent little scene in its own right showing us Akane as this, you know, very skilled and very uh, dedicated and determined Mazer Tank uh, operator and how, um, you know, they say that all battle plans go south once the first shot is fired. Well, once the giant monster shows up, kind of all battle plans do the same thing. And it shows the, uh, you know, but showing us from behind the eye of somebody actually in the Mazer tank is very creative and it's very new. And it was the first of many things in this film that made me think of a manga. And we'll see that theme kind of repeated as we go, but giving us this ground's eye view, this is, uh, you know, the man in the can, or the woman in the can in this case, uh, of, of a, the fight against Godzilla, I thought was very, a very, a very good way to get us kind of into the head of the character right away. Because we can imagine ourselves in that position, you know, behind the wheel of this, of this machine, looking up at this impossibly large foe and trying to, to fight it. And then the panic when Akane, you know, doesn't see the Jeep backing up and she rams it when she's trying to maneuver the Mazer tank. You know, we, we can understand it because it's a crazy situation and a crazy scenario and everything's happening at once. So despite her training, all this kind of goes down. As I said, Akane is our identification character. And again, this is very manga or if you uh, prefer anime-esque type touch. Uh, I think Akane is a really good character. She's a big upgrade over the previous female lead of this sort, who would be Kiriko from Godzilla x Megaguirus. Who, uh, as we covered way back on episode four of this show, um, she's almost like a second shot at Kiriko. Uh, you know, she's the dedicated soldier. She has the tragic backstory, the personal vendetta. But Akane is much more interesting, and I think she's portrayed much better than Kiriko, and remains, um, you know, to me, a far superior character. Uh, the, now, like I said, this, this, this manga sort of sensibility, it gives the movie kind of fresh vibe. We, this very easily could have been a comic series. Um, you know, it, it, I could see the way that they, you can almost see how they block it out. Kind of like a, a series of panels in a manga. Um, Akane is a kind of a, a stock character for this sort of thing. Somebody with the personal vendetta. We've seen that before in Godzilla comics. We saw it very well done in James Stokoe's Godzilla half century war also covered previously on this show. Um, but, uh, you know, Yumiko Shaku, 
the actress who plays Akane, she does a lot with this, and you really can believe her performance. You know, with the uh, when she's at the review board and she stands up and she says, "I'm ready to take whatever punishment you you give me," and then you see her at her desk job and stuff, and you can just see the sadness. And not only for the all the men that that died as a result of her mistake, but in herself, the disappointment in herself. And it's a very, uh, it's a very short scene, but it's a very uh, memorable scene of her sitting in the empty auditorium where they had the memorial for all the uh, anti-Megalosaurus force uh, troops that were killed on the night of Godzilla's attack, and she's just sitting there by herself. You know, she's the only one that made it out, kind of thing. So I think she does a great job. I think Akane's a, a really good character, and definitely gives the human side of this a, a nice focus, which we didn't get so much even in GMK. GMK the was about the story. It was kind of high concept, whereas this is a much more simplistic sort of story, uh, but gives us that human element to latch onto. All right, so besides Akane, we also get introduced, as I said, to Godzilla. Now, this is specifically the second Godzilla after the one which attacked in 1954. This is a similar approach to a lot of the Heisei and Millennium films where, you know, we just have a new Godzilla, but we also had the one in 54 because that one was so iconic and we can talk about the Oxygen Destroyer and we can talk about, you know, uh, history repeating itself and all that stuff. So, uh, it again, kind of uh, tried and true method, but it works and it works nicely here as well. And specifically in this film, as we will see now, Talking about flashbacks to the Showa era, who was playing the Prime Minister, but Kumi Mizuno, the queen of the Showa era, one of the most beloved and recognizable actresses from the Toho players in the Showa period. Uh, Lots of credits in this series. My personal favorite will always be Miss Namikawa, a.k.a. the girl from Planet X in Monster Zero in her silver and black jumpsuit and her bob haircut. Oh yeah, that uh, that brought up a lot of a lot of feelings for me when I was a kid. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, we also get the uh, Secretary of Defense, who becomes the second Prime Minister in this film, is Akira Nakeo, who was played Commander Aso in the back half of the Heisei movies, who appeared as a, a recurring character uh, from one of the military roles in that film. So definitely kind of bringing back uh, previous and familiar faces to the series in this one. Now, uh, when we meet uh, the Prime Minister and her assistant, we get flashbacks to 1954, showing Godzilla, of course, attacking Tokyo and uh, being killed by the Oxygen Destroyer. We do get to see the CG version of the Godzilla from 1954 flailing around in the death throes of the Oxygen Destroyer. It's it's really brief, and it's kind of like, what, what? Because you're expecting to see the scene from the actual one, and you get the this uh, kind of oddball CG one for a second, but very cool, again, nonetheless. But we also get flashbacks to Mothra and War of the Gargantuas. Now, as I said, uh, right before I recorded this, they had Rift Tracks was doing the uh, live version of Mothra, so that's very cool. Uh, and a hat tip to Miles Imhoff, again at Toe Kingdom, who makes a good point, that they, they use these films to talk about the advancements of technology, specifically the atomic heat ray in Mothra and the Mazer tank in War of the Gargantuas. Well, neither of those films ever had a direct sequel. Because even... Uh, Godzilla vs. The Thing is mm, kind of, sort of, a sequel, but it can be taken without be, without having seen Mothra. And War of the Gargantuas, of course, never was followed up on. So, by having those two films, you kind of give them a direct sequel. Now, of course, we know 
that uh, with Mothra already in continuity, what will happen in the direct sequel to this film, which is Godzilla Tokyo SOS, but we will talk about that at another time. But uh, at the time that this was made in 2002, neither of those films had a direct sequel. So very cool to at least give them uh, some continuity inside the series and to acknowledge them and uh, to you know kind of give them a little bit of closure, even if it is kind of way after the fact. So very neat. Uh, our uh, Dr. Yuhara, he is our main scientist character. He has a cute little daughter. He is a you know single parent. They, we find out a little bit of his tragic backstory. But during the initial um, briefing with the scientists, when they show us the bones of uh, Godzilla 54, Dr. Yuhara asks, are they making a clone of Godzilla? Now, I, I, this line kind of stuck out to me because of, of something that never actually happened. And let me explain that. This film, along with Tokyo SOS, form kind of a, a, a duo. Now, there was supposed to be a third film in that series. Supposedly, it was going to be titled Godzilla x Godzilla. And instead of fighting Kiru in that film, the, uh, you know, the Japanese government was going to actually clone Godzilla using the bones of Godzilla 1954. So, was that kind of a subtle hint that, yeah, down the line, that was the intention uh, from this series? From, um, you know, that they were going to do a clone? Was that the intention of Tezuka and Mamora that they wanted to put that out there? That, yes, we will be cloning him and they just didn't get a chance to do it? Or is it just a, a line to ask the question to, you know, push him? Well, not, he's not a clone, he's going to be a cyborg. So, I don't know. It's it's kind of food for thought. One of those speculatory things. Now, now after Kiru is announced and, um, and brought the, into the public knowledge, we get a scene of... Prime Minister Suge, who, of course, as I said, is Kumi Mizuno, at the Diet Building, and she's being mobbed by reporters, and they're asking her questions about taxes and how they're going to pay for this. Is this the rearmament of Japan? I think these are a nice touch. It really adds some realism to what would be really an insane proposal if you put this in real life. But then again, living in a, if you accept this as reality, living in a country where giant monsters land on your shores every few years, it's a pretty insane situation. And sometimes an insane situation needs an insane solution. But I like that they showed that people demanding to know these questions that you know would be asked of any government official who proposed building a giant robot as part of their defense budget. So I thought that was really nice. And and the, the question about the rearmament of Japan, I thought was interesting considering the massive amounts of weapons that they're shown to have as part of their self-defense force, given the alternate reality version of, uh, of Japan that exists inside of these films. So I thought that was very nice. We do get scenes, of course, of the MG surrounded by scaffolding with people working. Uh, that's just part of the character at this point. We've gotten it literally every time Mechagodzilla has shown up. I see no reason not to continue it here. So nice to see, uh, you know, people working on catwalks and uh, tied off on harnesses to work on this giant robot underground. That's just what we do. All right. Now, giving the Mechagodzilla a name, calling it Kiru, is a big step. I don't know that I can overstate just how big a step that is for this, literally the third version of this character since the since the 70s so you know this is 2002 so with and um let's see godzilla vs mech godzilla was 1974 so let's see that's within 30 years we've gotten three versions of the character right so that's that's quite a lot even for this for this series so calling him kiru is a very big deal because it differentiates him from the other two 
okay? First and foremost. You can always say Kiru and people know which MG you mean. Secondly, and probably more importantly, it really helps cement it with a personality. You know, it, a lot of the complaints about the Heisei Mechagodzilla was that it was boring. It was just a big robot. I mean, the the one, the, the Showa Mechagodzilla at least was, you know, it, it, it had some personality to it. It was an evil alien robot. It, it roared and it, it spun its hands around and, it, and, you know, it looked cool. It did the thing where it's turned its head backwards and fought on two fronts and stuff like that. Whereas the Heisei one was just kind of like, yeah, it looked like Godzilla, sort of, but it was kind of generic in a lot of ways, and it didn't evoke a lot of emotion. Kiru has a much stronger design from a visual standpoint than the Heisei Mechagodzilla, and he has a much bigger personality, obviously tying him directly with Godzilla, as opposed to, again, the Heisei, which was tied to King Ghidorah, because it was Mecha King Ghidorah that they built him out of. Now, again, from a storyline standpoint, that makes perfect sense, but from a thematic standpoint, it's like that's kind of a tenuous connection. Here, they've literally grown a bio-robot version of Godzilla, and that's their Mechagodzilla. So it becomes much more memorable and a much stronger character for that, I think. Much like we saw with the Garuda support ship in uh, the Heisei Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, we get the AC-3 White Herons. They are, there's a trio of them. And um, they're, I think they, they also kind of remind me a little bit of the support vehicles from the Ultra series. I don't know if that's a intentional nod or not, maybe just where my mind is at. Uh, my son, my oldest son, approved of how maneuverable they were despite their size. He ended up watching a bit of this with me while I was watching it for the show. Uh, I like them. They're, they're, they're nice. They're, again, a realistic touch that they can pick up and tow the M, uh, Kiru around wherever it needs to go and that they're actually controlling them, the Kiru remotely rather than actually being in the cockpit. Another thing that, uh, it does differentiate it from the Heisei, but also in a, in a way kind of throws back to the, um, to the original because the original was controlled remotely first by computer. And then of course by telepathic link, but again, we haven't covered terror of Mechagodzilla yet. So um, as we are being shown the promotional video for the Kiru, Dr. Yuhara talks about ha having a DNA computer to run the mind. And as soon as you realize that, yeah, that's Godzilla DNA, you're like, uh-oh, that can't be good. So <laughs> more on that in a moment. Um, speaking of the, uh, the video that they show as they're introducing Kiru onto the global stage, we get a first look at the Absolute Zero Cannon, the AZC, as I refer to it in my notes here. But the Absolute Zero Cannon is badass. It is an amazingly cool gun that freezes stuff down to Absolute Zero, and then it just crumbles because it can't support its own weight at that, you know, uh, once all molecular activity is stopped. But I have to ask the question. It seems like way too much firepower to put on a giant robot. You've already got a robot. If you've got this gun, why don't you put it on a tank? Or some kind of a mobile gun with treads? I asked the exact same question with the Heisei Mechagodzilla with the plasma grenade. I, I, will, I will in the future ask the exact same question about the Mogura from Godzilla versus Space Godzilla, but the spiral grenades, if, you, if, if you're basing it around one powerful weapon, put it on something that is not so big a target and that you can aim it better because we see the absolute zero cannon fired twice in this and misses because of Godzilla knocking around the, the Kiru. So it's like, I mean, it, that's one of those things. And, and, and you know, the, the, the problem is when I ask this question, I have the answer because robots 
are cool. That's why you put it on a robot. So if you ever find yourself asking that question like I did, just remember that and you'll be okay. Hideki Matsui makes an extended cameo in this movie. And now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to talk about baseball for a minute or two. So if you're not interested in baseball, just, you know, uh, think about something else for the next couple of minutes, okay? Now, Hideki Matsui, at the time this was being filmed, his nickname, Gojira, he was playing for the Yomiuri Giants, who are often called the New York Yankees of Japanese baseball. However, right around the release of this film in December, he signed with the actual New York Yankees, where he was a mainstay with that team until 2009. Now, Matsui is one of the most decorated players in the history of the Japanese big leagues, okay? He won the World Series MVP in 2009 as a Yankee. He would bounce around free agency for a few years after that, but then he signed a one-day contract with the Yankees in minor league club in 2013 and then retired so that he could retire as a Yankee. Uh, he was nicknamed Gojira originally because when he was a kid he had skin problems, but it came that nickname came to grow into him to honor his big power at the plate. Uh, one of the uh, you know just a, a really stand-up guy as far as all things seems to be, but one of the greats as far as coming from Japanese ball over to American ball, and one of the few that was a power hitter. You know we tend to think of guys like. Uh, you know, Ichiro, who's, uh, you know, a, a contact hitter and just an all-around great player. But Matsui was a power hitter and holds a lot of records still to this day in Japanese leagues for home runs, hits, and, and other uh, batting type of uh, stats. So very cool, especially, again, considering his popularity. And his nickname was Gojira. So, <laughs> and then he showed up on the Yankees. So by the time this film was actually released on DVD here in the States, you could watch Hideki Matsui on TV just about any night you wanted. Uh, so I thought that was funny, especially growing up in New York like I did with, uh, you know, a family full of Yankees fans. So that was always neat. So, uh, Back to the monsters now. During the fight, the first fight with Kiru, uh, Godzilla absolutely no-sells all the rockets and missiles that Kiru blasts him and not even dropping his hands. This scene is a bone of contention for a lot of viewers. Some people think it's really stupid looking. And some people say, no, Godzilla is just kind of testing to see how tough Kiru really is. And these missiles and stuff are no different than the other uh, armament he gets shot with. I can see that point. I still think they could have done it a little bit different because Godzilla looks really stiff. It's almost as if he was directed, just stand there. Don't move. Don't move. Okay, so I'm not sure what it is. It does kind of look a little odd because it almost looks like at first it looks like, oh, it must be a dummy mocked up with the suit and not an actor in it. But he's moving a little bit. So I don't know. I think you, I think it could have been done better. But I do think that the the latter crowd saying that it's Godzilla no selling Kiru's uh, initial attacks because they just don't make that much of an impact on him. I think they're probably on the right track, you know. Uh, then, of course, Godzilla roars and it's a sense memory, almost. It's like an instinct that's awoken, and Kiru goes on a rampage, tearing through the city. At one point, he walks straight through a giant high-rise building, which, again, my son was really it's like, why doesn't it fall down? And I'm like, well, I guess because he walked through it low enough. I don't know. What struck me upon this viewing is a line that Dr. Yuhara says earlier in the film, where he's talking about his little bio-robot trial bite, and he says, well, man is devastating the planet. And so, you know, really, yes, Godzilla causes a lot of damage, but Kiru causes a lot more. This man-made, you know, synthesis of nature and technology does a lot more damage than Godzilla, especially at this point in the film. So is man not devastating the planet right now? 
through the use of uh, ill-advised combination of the real world and the technological world? It's, it's kind of a food-for-thought question, you know? Uh, I'll, I'll leave it up to you guys to say what you think. I mean, it's pretty, pretty clear that, especially, again, when you factor in Tokyo SOS, that this is, yes, I understand that, you know, they have their reasons for doing this, but uh, maybe not this uh, doing it in this way. But, again, gives Kiru a, a great sense of being an actual monster. It gives him a lot of personality. We see that deep inside him, he's got this raging spirit from the original Godzilla waiting to be unleashed. So he's not just a machine, you know, he's not just something where sparks fly out and that's all she wrote. You know, this is, uh, deep down, this really is a cybernetic thinking organism as well. During Godzilla's second attack, we get to see a tank melting underneath the intense heat of the atomic heat breath. This immediately again brings me back to the early Showa days when this was a an effect that would be uh, used in several different films to show, you know, the intense uh, heat of the uh, of the radioactivity being pushed out, the thermal energy involved. So nice little touch there. Again, little throwaway scene, nicely done that doesn't call attention to itself, but to me, one of the many little. Uh, callbacks to the Showa era here. Now, as Kiru is launched in order to uh, uh, intercept Godzilla during his second attack, they does make the plan, Akane does, to launch Kiru from up in the air where he's being towed by the herons. And then he blasts in and comes in right at ground level and crashes shoulder first into Godzilla and sends him flying. Now, the first time I watched this film was down in the clubhouse of the reserve apartments with my good friend, Joe Butler. And we're watching this and we started cheering when he, sh- when this, when Akane pulls this move off and we have thus dubbed it the, the shoulder, shoulder block, block from, from hell. hell. And it's extremely effective. And as I said, it's super effective sending Godzilla crashing away as Kiru rams it at full speed. Very cool scene and very well done with the combination of, uh, you know, live action plus a little bit of CG animation and stuff and some optical effects to really make it look very seamless and very well done. Uh, during this fight, the absolute zero cannon misfires again, this time wiping out three buildings at once as it charges up and then, um, you know, Kiru is knocked over and just wipes it out. It's like, again, if you put this into a tank or something a little less uh, of a big target, maybe you could aim it and shoot and get out of the way. But again, robots are cool. So, you know, it's, you take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have Kiru. So, um, now, uh, the last bit in this film, as I said, features Akane actually climbing into and piloting Kiru directly so that she can use Kiru as the instrument of her wrath against Godzilla directly. Now, this immediately reminds me of Emmy from the end of Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. Um, I think it was episode 18 or 19 of uh, Earth Destruction Directive, where, again, at the end, our heroine is in the robot actually fighting against Godzilla. And uh, now... Akane has a lot, has a lot more success. I'd say probably more success than Emmy because Emmy kind of gets beaten up here. Uh, but they both do drive Godzilla off in the end and they both go off and, and go on. But of course, uh, Kiru will live to fight another day. We never really see Mecha King Ghidorah again. Um, but still very cool again. It's, and you know, that's the thing. These films do reuse, uh, concepts and ideas, but they all kind of come from the same place. So it's okay. You know, it's, it's, I look at it like the James Bond films. There are certain elements and aspects that get reused over and over in those films. I mean, how often does Bond have to fight down a ski slope or go on a car chase or go on a boat chase or, 
you know, whatever, a fight on something really tall. These things happen, but it's it's the successful application of those tro- tropes, excuse me, which makes for a fun film. And I think that's what we get here. Uh, this is a very different approach from Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, All Giant Monsters Attack, the previous film. But it's not an unwelcome one, because what it does is, instead of going high concept, it brings in kind of a classic Showa sort of feel. It's got, but at the same time, it's modernist. You know, having the more realistic aspects, having the discussions about, you know, the ethics of, of using the Godzilla cells, having the, uh, the, the, the prime minister be questioned about how much is this going to cost. Those little touches like that that give it a very, you know, a kind of realistic approach for an unrealistic subject. I think it's nice. It moves along very briskly. This is about 88 minutes, but it really, it's snappy, goes point, point to point. No downtime or filler in this film. It never gets bogged down. The characters, especially Akane and Dr. Yuhara and the prime ministers, they're broad, but they're well-painted. You know, it's like, it's okay to be a broad character if we understand and can empathize with that character and why they are behaving the way that they're behaving. You know, even Kiru, the Mechagodzilla has a personality for the first time, really. Mechagodzilla is not just a tool for others, but an actual character in and of itself. My main complaint for this film is the lack of screen time for Godzilla. I mean, he's the top build character, isn't he? Godzilla X, Mechagodzilla. Uh, but... You know, I mean, that's that's a valid and legitimate complaint. I really think it is, especially after the last film, again, where G was front and center for quite a lot of it. But really, this is Akane and Kiru's movie, which once more adds to that kind of manga feel, because I can see how you would tell a comic book story about, you know, this this young, you know, uh, Mazer operator. She has one bad day that causes a lot of bad things to happen, and then she is working her way back, and she has her mission. She has her goal of taking out Godzilla because of all the pain and hurt that he caused her. And then she's introduced to the Kiru, and now she has a partner. So I can it's a girl and her robot. That's what you'd call it, too. A girl and her mecha, if you will. So I can see how, how, how in this scenario, Godzilla has to take the backseat to Akane and Kiru. And I'm okay with that, because it's still a good film, and it's still enjoyable to watch that, even though Godzilla's not really the main character. He's almost like a obstacle for Akane and Kiru. So it's almost, again, like a Showa film where Godzilla might be the villain if we're talking about an early Showa film. Is that intentional? Is it not intentional? I don't know. I still think the intention was more to put the focus on the human on the human side, on, on Akane and the relationship between her and Kiru. And I think that does a very good job and is portrayed very well and comes across really strongly on the screen. Overall, this was a superior effort. Uh, the Millennium films have been pretty uneven. This is one of the better ones, and it's earned its fan-favorite status as far as I'm concerned. I've seen, like I said, a lot of folks really enjoy this one and really enjoy um, you know, the, the Kiru as a, as a monster. And I've seen Kiru named as some folks' favorite Mechagodzilla very, very frequently. It, like I said, so it's definitely a fan favorite. It comes about that honestly. And as far as I'm concerned, it earned its direct sequel because this story deserves a follow-up. Now, that is the only film in the Millennium series that has a direct sequel is this one. And of the others, I said, yeah, I can kind of believe that because I could see how you could have done a sequel to Godzilla 2000, kind of like they did with the Heisei films, but this one is the only one that demands a direct sequel. And I think it's worthy of it because it's that good of a film. So um, I really enjoyed it. Now, if you want to check out Godzilla X Mechagodzilla or... 
since we're here in the United States, Godzilla against Mechagodzilla. You got a couple of options. It is available on DVD and it is available on Blu-ray. Now the Blu-ray is a double feature along with um, the previous film, which is uh, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, All Giant Monsters Attack. And the DVD is by itself. Now, uh, neither of those have a whole lot of bonuses on them. In fact, uh, the DVD is pretty bare bones. It's got a few trailers on it, but no trailers for any Godzilla movies. It's got some for some of the other Japanese films that were being released by Sony around that time. That goes for $5.99 on Amazon. And, you know, it's like, that's great right there. The double feature, like I said, along with GMK, it goes for $9.95 on Blu-ray. I have the DVD of this. I bought it when it first came out, so I don't have a Blu-ray, so I can't comment on that. But, I mean, how can you go wrong with those two movies for 10 bucks on Blu-ray? You know they're going to look good. Those Sony, um, uh, Sony and Classics Media uh, Godzilla films all pretty much universally look good. Uh, on Blu-ray. So check those out. Use the Amazon.com link at TwoTrueFreaks.com and check those out if you want to watch these. And I, I heartily recommend it. So uh, if you don't have GMK already, you might want to get the Blu-ray set. If you do, pick up the DVD. I watched it on my uh, my 40-inch uh, TV here. I thought it looked great. And, uh, you know, maybe that's just the fact that I don't have the greatest eyes. But, you know, uh, I, I thought it looked good. The DVD is definitely worth getting. Blu-ray also worth getting. So check them out. All right, and um, hey, have, have you, any of you folks out there watched this one? You can also watch it on Amazon Video for rent to, uh, or rent or purchase if you want. If you've seen Godzilla, X-Men Godzilla, and you have some thoughts, why don't you send them in? Send me an email at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. Tell me what you think about this film and about Kiru and about Akane and about Godzilla taking a backseat to them, and we'll talk about that, okay? So I'll tell you what. You compose your thoughts. I'll compose mine. I'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. We are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Marvel Godzilla number 5 was cover dated December 1977 and was released on or about September 6, 1907, thanks to Mike's of Amazing World of Comics at DCIndexes.com for that information. Uh, the cover has Godzilla locked in Mortal Kombat with three monsters. We're assuming these are the three monsters uh, that were in the uh, mountain at the end of last issue, uh, Dr. Demonicus's creations. It says, uh, 
Isle of the Living Demons, and we see Godzilla's back, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but does what, what that does is puts, kind of puts the spotlight on the other three monsters. What's interesting is that the logo and the uh, ad copy at the top are covering up what appears to be like the energy screen. And uh, so this is a situation where I think this cover would probably look better without the uh, the logo there, because then you could see the crackling energy of the uh, of the volcano. It's a, it's a good cover. Uh, um, it's not not the you know not the best one, but it's one of the better ones we've gotten so far. I like we get a couple of people at the rim of the volcano again for scale. So I thought that was pretty neat as well. Uh, our writer is Doug Mensch. Our artist once again is Tom Sutton. Inker is Klaus Jansen. Letterer is John Costanza. Colorist Phil Rashi. Editor is Archie Goodwin. And our title is The Isle of Lost Monsters. As Godzilla fends off another attack made by S.H.I.E.L.D.'s Godzilla squad, Dr. Demonicus unleashes his other monsters to attack the beast. Realizing there's a complex below, Dum Dum sends Gabe Jones to investigate. Gabe is captured by Demonicus and his men. Demonicus explains that he was a scientist that was exposed to radiation during an accident and was deemed unfit to continue practicing science. Clearly ignoring his own madness, he learned of the Life Stone which had fallen into the Aleutian Islands. He then constructed his base and created the monsters which are now fighting Godzilla in order to use as weapons for world domination. When Demonicus is told that his creatures are being killed by Godzilla, Gabe uses the moment to break loose and stop Demonicus. As Godzilla kills the last of Demonicus' monsters, S.H.I.E.L.D. destroys the base, captures him, and frees the Eskimo tribe under his rule. Next issue, Herb Trimpey returns to the art. Dr. Takaguchi's secret is revealed, and much more in A Monster Enslaved. And uh, hat tip to the Marvel Wikia at marvel.wikia.com for the synopsis. So, uh, yeah, you know, they, they promised on the cover, they'd specifically say the greatest monster battle yet, and this is the first, uh, you know, uh, real big kind of monster mash throwdown that we've gotten in the series. We got, of course, Godzilla fighting Batragon last issue, but this time he's fighting a trio. Of, uh, of other monsters, which is pretty neat. A uh, pretty good issue. I enjoyed this one, so I think we should just go and get right into the notes here. Page one is our splash page. Kind of a dynamic splash page with a lot of action with the shield dragonfly choppers zooming all around Godzilla and blasting him, and G uh, reaching up and grabbing at them. Um, you know, the monsters in this book, and Godzilla especially, they don't seem to be Sutton's strong suit in the way that they are, I think, for Herb Trimpey. But G looks very enraged here, and I think it's a good job. You can see a good amount of musculature through his chest and his ribs and, you know, the way his legs are bent and all that. So it's, it's a very nice splash page and a good way to open this story. Turning over now to uh, page three, panel six, we get our proper introductions of the other three monsters. There is the lizard, Gilaron. There is a big moth named Leparax and a centipede-like monster named Centipore. Uh, these are an interesting trio. I, 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 they're pretty neat. Uh, they do seem a little derivative of some other monsters, but that, that's okay, you know? Monsters tend to be derivative of each other when you get so many monsters after a while. Uh, Gilaron looks a bit like the Gamera monster Jiger, but without Jiger's uh, tusks that come out of her face. Uh, kind of quadrupedal lizard with a ridge and uh, kind of a long mouth. You know, and uh, teeth and a long tail. Uh, Leparax uh, looks like Mothra, as you would expect, but has kind of a long tail, almost like uh, we would see much later with Megajirus. 
and has kind of a blue and purple color scheme going on. And Centipore looks like a centipede kind of mixed with like the sandworms from Dune. He has that kind of like face on him, um, you know. So uh, it's uh, not, they're not particularly inspired, nor are they any of them as cool as Batragon. But for a trio of monsters for Godzilla to fight, they, they do their job admirably. Turning over now to pages 6 and 7 as the monsters are released from the volcano and begin attacking Godzilla and then S.H.I.E.L.D. gets involved in the, uh, on the, in the fray and so everybody's kind of attacking Godzilla at once. So what's interesting here is, I just noticed this, we can see now on page 6 that Gileron actually has 8 legs, which was not, let me flip back here, was that on page 3 and I missed it? Yes, he does. <laughs> he's got, he's got, uh, well, yeah, he's got, well, you can see three legs on page three, but he's got clearly eight legs here on page six, so that makes him a bit, a bit more unique than Jiger, so that's pretty cool. I didn't even notice that. Wow. That shows, uh, how bad of a podcaster I am. But this, this sequence is really neat because this is where, uh, we see that Leparax has a real thing for these dragonfly helicopters. He continually attacks them, even as the other two monsters go to town on Godzilla. On page seven, we get a nice panel right in the middle. It's a about a third, it's the panel three, it's right in the middle of the page, it's the full width of the page. Of We are looking up from the volcano and we see uh, Gileron is biting Godzilla in the right hand while Godzilla has grabbed Centaphor in his left. And you see all the, the choppers flying around and that, that's, that's a really neat panel, I like that one quite a bit. Uh, further on down the page, uh, Dr. Demonicus confronts Gabe Jones and for the first time... Uh, of many instances in this comic, he calls him Black Man. He says, freeze, Black Man. And maybe I'm missing something here, because Demonicus is your pretty standard mad scientist creating monsters, you know, kind of Looney Tunes bad guy. Why is he a racist? It's never made clear. He's not like some guy that's creating genetically perfect beings. He's He's not a Nazi, He's so, but he calls Gabe black man repeatedly to the point that it's, it was almost distracting. Because I kept wondering, why is he acting like, why would he say that? You know, uh, I mean, a guy who, you don't expect a scientist whose big shtick is making giant monsters to be a racist, but it would appear that he is. And this doesn't jive with how, what we saw of Demonicus later on in Shogun Warriors, where he never... I don't remember him saying anything about, uh, you know, uh, our pilots, anything uh, racial about Alongo Savage or Genji about their, uh, you know, their races. So I'm, I just, it just really struck me as odd. I'm not sure what Mensch is going for here. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's not clear from the context or from the story, and it was kind of off-putting. Turning over now to page 10, this one is for Adam Tebow, as Eskimo Riot has been upgraded to Eskimo Uprising, as the Eskimos uh, join forces with S.H.I.E.L.D. and attack their enslaver. So that one's for you, Adam. Uh, later on down the page, panel 5, uh, Godzilla is really going to town on Demonicus's monsters here. He lays the smackdown on Gileron with his tail, just a whump, and sends him flying while at the same time blasting Centipore. Uh, with atomic breath, and it really looks like he he may well. It, it's kind of an illusion because you see the the fire breath going in front of Centipore. It almost looks like he blasted the head off of Centipore, but then we see at the top of page eleven that he just kind of destroys him in a torrent of atomic fire. So Centipore is down. Um, but a, a neat to see Godzilla just you know these these monsters don't look like they should be a super challenge for him, and they're not. He really just uh, eliminates them very quickly. Uh, page 11, we get the origin of Dr. Demonicus. 
Um, and basically, it's just Demonicus monologuing. I think if you looked up monologuing in a dictionary, it would show you this sequence, because he talks and talks and talks and talks, to the point where Gabe says, All right, weirdo, you've got the upper hand, so why don't you at least tell me who you are and how did you all, and how you did all this? And Demonicus goes, you want to know who I am, do you? And he just goes on. And, and he just keeps going. And it, it's, it's, it's almost comical how long he goes on telling his story here. Because he's still, de- he, we, we cut away back to outside and then we cut back inside and he's still going. So, you know how it is with these monsters, but, uh, but you know how it is with these bad guys. They like to, like to monologue. Over on page 14, panels one through three, Godzilla, and Gilaron are still tangling around. Godzilla's kind of grabbed Gilaron by the tail at this point. Leparax still has his mat on for these dragonfly choppers as he is grabbing a hold repeatedly of Dum-Dum Duggins. Uh, then down in panel three, as Dum-Dum is jumping out of the cockpit onto the landing strut and then shooting Leparax with a gun that appears to be a laser gun, he looks like a member of the G.I. Joe team. Just his pose, you know, the, the, the red laser gun, it really does look like something out of the G.I. Joe cartoon here, but obviously this predates G.I. Joe by uh, by some time. So just kind of an odd coincidence there. I wonder, I guess I should look this up. Did Tom Sutton ever work on G.I. Joe? I guess I'll have to look it up. And if you listeners out there know, why don't you send me an email and let me know. Uh, page 15, as I said, more monologuing from, <laughs> from Demonicus. Uh, then we turn over to page 17, and I'm not sure what is going on here, but um, as... Demonicus finishes his monologue, um, and he gets uh, a, a warning from one of his uh, one of his flunkies that the monsters are are in trouble. Gabe makes his move and attacks the flunkies, and then attacks Demonicus. I don't know what is going on with the art here, but the characters are just really stiff and really awkward. I mean, everybody kind of looks jilted. It, it it looks very amateurish. I'm not sure if there was a a breakdown of the, uh, between Sutton and, uh, and Jansen, or, or what it is here. I mean, the layouts themselves are just not good. It, this page looks unfinished. It almost looks like, uh, thumbnails a little bit, or just sketches. It's very rough, and, uh, just not appealing at all. Turning over now to pages, uh, 22 and 23, uh, Godzilla essentially beats Gileron off-page here, which is a little, uh, disappointing, you know? Because he's been he's been rolling around with them and throwing them around and stuff, but we never get to see him actually finish him off. I would have preferred to uh, see him actually finish all of the monsters off here. Leparax still going after that helicopter. I don't know what it is. It must smell like giant lady moth or something. But he really seems to want to grab a hold of that helicopter. Um, there's uh, it's, I like the cross cutting of action because right now it's it's almost like a Return of the Jedi thing. We're cutting between. Gabe Jones and Godzilla and Dum Dum Duggan and we keep going around and so that's really cool. There's a lot of uh, a lot of action. It's very exciting the way that it's cut, but to me there's way too much focus on Shield here. I mean we were promised on the cover the greatest monster battle yet, and this was teased as a big monster fight, but we're getting more of Gabe Jones and Demonicus and more of Dum Dum Duggan trying to get Leparax off his chopper than we are of Godzilla actually fighting the monsters. I would have preferred in my monster comic book to have more monsters fighting each other than S.H.I.E.L.D. fighting uh, monsters. But, you know, I mean, um, that's always kind of the rub is, you know, how do you get uh, get people interested in a story that's just about monsters without any humans? And there is a balance you have to strike. 
you know, you don't want to do like a Godzilla versus Gagan sort of thing where the last 20 minutes is like no dialogue. It's just monsters fighting. But uh, by the same token, there could be too much humans, um, too much humans in the humans and monsters equation. And I think that's what is going on kind of in the back half of this book. Uh, turning over now to page 30, Leparax finally mixes it up with Godzilla, only for Godzilla to blast him with atomic breath and stomp him into the ground in the span of three panels. And I have to say, rightly so, because Leparax had a hard time fighting a helicopter. There's no way he should be able to go, uh, you know, toe-to-toe, uh, -to -toe, so to speak, with uh, the king of the monsters. Uh, it's very clear at this point that uh, Demonicus's monsters were not up to snuff with Godzilla, the only one that even gave up a real bit of a fight was um, Batragon in the last issue, and he was, appropriately enough, the most interesting looking and best designed of the four, so that at least makes sense, I guess. But, uh, you know, the four of them together might have put up a better fight if S.H.I.E.L.D. wasn't there, but, you know, it's one of those uh, what-if scenarios that we'll never see. Uh, the ending here, where, uh, you know, they arrest Demonicus and his men, and they, they, they help out the Eskimos and all that, and then... Uh, Gabe, uh, you know, Gabe and, uh, Dum Dum are there, and, uh, Dum Dum says to one of the Eskimos, Frayed your way off on that count, pal. Godzilla ain't nothing but a monster, and all he did was fight other monsters. He didn't help or save anyone. And Gabe says, Oh no, what about a certain party who happened to be facing a pretty heavy scene up on that mountain some 20 minutes ago? And Dum Dum says, Yeah, well, so maybe the blasted monster does have some intelligence, just a little, of course, but I still ain't convinced. And then they show Godzilla leaving, and Dum Dum's question is how intelligent, how intelligent Godzilla is. And this is kind of hokey. I, di I didn't care for this ending at all. I mean, you know, I don't have a problem with Godzilla being a defender of, of the Earth. You know, that's a very show of thing. We're, you know, at the end of the show era here in this comic. But I don't know. I, I, did, I just didn't care for it. Again, too much human stuff here. Dum Dum questioning whether Godzilla's intelligent. And Gabe kind of suggesting that Godzilla helped them on purpose, which I don't really... I don't really buy, considering how much S.H.I.E.L.D. has attacked them, and attacked him, I should say, over the, not only previously, but in this very issue, so, eh, that, that I didn't really, didn't really care for. Uh, pretty good issue, um, compared to the last one, I thought it was a good follow-up, and, uh, you know, finished up the story pretty well. It's got some poor choices in the story, and some really stiff artwork in certain segments of the human, um, certain parts of the human segment. I would have much preferred the focus be on the big fight between Godzilla and the three Lifestone monsters, rather than the team-up we get between Godzilla, Gabe Jones, and Dum Dum Duggan. Uh, but all that said, still really enjoyable, a good blow-off, even if it did come down a bit from last issue. Uh, very much looking forward to number six. I gotta say that every issue of this I've read, I haven't been dreading reading the next one. I've been excited uh, to read the next issue, so that's always a good sign. And uh, as always, this book is collected in Essential Godzilla. Let's take a look at some of the ads. We get the pizzazz ad we've seen a few times on the inside front cover. Uh, Hodgepodge ad, uh, Youth Sales Club. Uh, ever since I heard um, uh, Tom Panarese and Shag talk about these, uh, you know, grit or the seed ads, and Shag made a good point. He goes, I counted like eight things on this that you could do on your smartphone. And it's like, mm, yeah, the smartphone people put them out of business. Uh, we get the, uh, the Clark bars ad. I always like these Clark bar candy bars ad because, you know, I know Clark and I know Zagnut, but I've never had any of these other ones. Clark coconut, Clark peanut butter log, crunchy peanut butter, and Clark mint. I'd love to try them, you know? I mean, I love Zagnut. Don't get me wrong. I like, I'm one of those weird guys. I like, I do like candy bars that don't have chocolate. I'm a huge fan of Payday. 
for instance. I mean, oh my god, it's caramels and peanuts. What is there not to like on a payday bar? It's it's just fantastic. <laughs> Zag, that's right up my alley, but I always like to try some of those other ones. Have a super Halloween with uh, products from Marvel Comics. I just like this because Ghost Rider is on it, and what character is better suited to Halloween than the Ghost Rider and his stunt cycle? So I guess uh, kind of a double thing, cashing in on the fact that Ghost Rider was around, and the stunt cycle makes me think, of course, of Evil Knievel and the Evil Knievel stunt cycle, a favorite here on uh, Two True Freaks. Uh, I I haven't ever have the uh, with two interchangeable heads, Johnny Blaze and Ghost Rider. It's pretty neat. I don't know. I've never seen this device or this toy. I should say, never known anyone with it. Anyone out there have this? Anyone memories of this? So write right in and let me know. Uh, I got the Daisy BB gun ad. I can't imagine they'd ever let them do that nowadays. Um, we got a house ad. Two more giant size summer specials. That's this Fantastic Four annual number twelve and Marvel two and one. Featuring The Thing and Spider-Man to duel a mad god. And that one I have read because that is with Jim Starlin. And, uh, you know, that that's the debut of Thanos and has the Avengers and all that. Not the debut, but that's that same story. That big story that ran through all those odd titles that Starlin did. Um, we get the Godzilla-grams. And uh, uh, mostly positive, you know, mostly positive uh, feedback. And, uh, you know, some, some good stuff. But uh, we do get one that's kind of from Al Schroeder III, which is kind of moderately uh, critical, saying, you, you're kidding. You've got to be kidding me. Uh, the basic concept, turning Godzilla into a comic, is rotten. He goes, and yet there were nice things. So it's kind of a middle-of-the-road thing. He compares it to the Hercules movies of the early 60s. And it's like, mm, Daikaiju and Peplum, I don't know that I would really compare them other than they were both imported and they were both wildly popular, so... Uh, let's see, let's move on here. Uh, you know, these are the, the same type of ads we, we've come to expect here. Uh, we get the bullpen bulletins. There's a picture of that, of the torpedo. Um, I did not know that torpedo would ever rate being pictured on, <laughs> in the Marvel bullpen bulletins, but there he is. Uh, let's see, they, they're talking about, um, uh, Marvel premiere featuring him. Uh, the two-in-one annual and the Avengers annual. Uh, with Jim Starlin, the Conan Annual by Roy Thomas and John Buscema. I think I may have the one they're talking about there. What, not sure what number that is. I got to look that up. Uh, we do get a Hostess ad, but it's one that we did previously. It's Spider-Man vs. Legal Eagle, so, uh, we'll have to just skip out on that one. Uh, up to, see, up to seven miles away with Secret Spy Scope, a 25 power microscope. Um, a super power optic lens pull in distant people, houses, wild animals, and natural wonders. Looks like a little pocket spyglass. And then the back cover is uh, Spalding Streetball with Rick Barry and Dr. J. Anyone who's ever read comics from this era is familiar with that ad. So, uh, like I said, I enjoyed it. I'm enjoying this series. It's, it's, it's fun just to revisit Marvel Bronze Age stuff in general, and then this kind of odd American take on such a Japanese character like Godzilla, and then putting him 
right smack dab in the middle of the Marvel Universe with S.H.I.E.L.D. is it's just a real fun take, and I'm really enjoying it. So, uh, I'm, And I'm, like I said, definitely looking forward to the next one. What, have you, what do you guys think? Have any of y'all out there been reading along, reading in the Essential or your own copies? Send me some feedback. Curious what you guys thought about this two-parter with Demonicus and Batragon and Giloran and Centaphor and Leparax and these other monsters that will never appear again. Uh, so uh, let's just let me know what you think. And uh, while you're doing that, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Thirty years ago, I walked into a comic store, and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Right now it is time for some listener feedback as I hold in my hands a few emails from our listeners. If you would like to write into the show, you can send me an email at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. And all the various ways you can get in touch with the show are repeated in the outro. So let's get right into it. Our first email today comes from Tim Elliott. And it is entitled Earth Destruction Directive number 45, or I can't believe he ate the whole thing. And Tim writes, greetings, Luke. Sorry this email is a little late, but, you know, yeah, I, I do know. <laughs> I, can't, I can't say anything about people emailing in late when my show is consistently late. So, you know, that's one of the reasons I never announced an actual schedule. Like, you know, the Leylands who say weekly back in the day, you know, it's like, oh, geez, I'm never going to keep up with that. But anyway. Getting into Tim's email, Tim says, Great show on Varan the Unbelievable, one of the lesser-known kaiju films. This was my first time watching this film, and it is a lot of fun. I like Varan's design, and it is refreshing to have a monster with no projectile weapon or gimmick other than its sheer size. I also had a strong emotional reaction to the creature's death at the end of, at the, end of the film. Much like the ending of Rodan... War of the Gargantuas, and especially Godzilla vs. Destoroya, you feel for the monster in their death throes. I agree with that. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's funny because if you if y'all listen to the uh, Gaiden I just did for Mothra, that the first that uh, that was the first time I had watched Mothra in a couple of years, and the idea of making a, a sympathetic monster, and I was reading some stuff comparing kind of the uh, the way that Mothra is treated in Mothra's film versus the way that Rodan is treated, and that Rodan is still a destructive beast, but at the end you do feel sympathy. 
and and clearly, uh, you know, War of the Gargantuas, we get Sanda and Gyra, so one of them we feel bad for, and one of them not so much. And of course, Godzilla versus Destoroya, it really does tug at the heartstrings. So I know exactly what Tim is going for here. Uh, Tim continues, I'm digging your continuing coverage of the Big G in his own Marvel mag. I'm reading I'm reading these for the first time along with your show. Excellent, me too. Going to cut this short, Luke, but I have one question. Why do you think Varon did not catch on like other Toho monsters? Why did he not appear in other films as the series expanded and threw more and more monsters together? My only thought is that he was too close in look to Godzilla, and they wanted more contrast when teaming their monsters. Keep them stomping. Tim Elliott, co-host, Third Degree Burn, shameless plug. Well, Tim, first off, thank you very much for writing in. Always good to hear from a, uh, a fellow podcaster, and of course, always good to hear from uh, uh, from you. Um, why did Varon not catch on? I, I think Varon lacked the personality. If you look at the uh, the monsters that tend to recur, uh, it's the ones that have personality. So Godzilla, Rodan, Mothra, King Ghidorah, uh, even Gigan and Mechagodzilla, you know, they reappeared. Destroy All Monsters kind of throws everybody together, and Varan makes a, a little cameo in that. Um, you know, I, I really think it's a lack of personality. Had Varan not... If the production of Varan had not been as tortured and circuitous as it was, if Varan had, say, debuted in a film closer in style to Rodan, I think we would have seen him again. Now, Varan is one of those monsters that was scheduled to reappear several times. He was uh, in one of the original scripts for the film that eventually became Godzilla vs. Gigan. Um, he was in the original script of uh, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, All Giant Monsters Attack. He's just never kind of made it over the hump, so to speak. And and I like I said, I think a lot of it has to do with personality. I think he's got a really neat design. I like that he's kind of a halfway between Godzilla and Angurus in that he could walk upright, but he can also go on all fours. He's got some spikes on his back, but not a lot. Uh, the flying squirrel aspect, I think, is really unique. And had he come back uh, beyond his cameo in Destroy All Monsters, they would have used that. In fact, they even do use it in his Destroy All Monsters appearance. So, I, I honestly think it's more that than anything else. I think Varon, uh, since the story was less complicated because it originally was going to be a TV film and then they kind of expanded it out, he didn't have as much opportunity to really show off a strong personality and thus wasn't a monster that uh, neither Toho, you know, their, their production crew, nor the fans were really clamoring to get more of. Compare this to, like, Baragon. And Baragon, I think, has an excellent personality in Frankenstein Conquers the World and was one of the monsters that they always kept trying to bring back. It's just, it was more logistical reasons with Baragon because that, uh, that Baragon suit was on loan to Subaraya so much that he was never really available, uh, which is why uh, Gorosaurus gets plugged into Baragon's spot in Destroy All Monsters, which is a, a film we will cover uh, down the line here. But uh, uh, good question. Thank you very much for writing in, Tim. Our next email today comes from Professor Allen, and it's entitled Oil SOS and Pearl Oyster. And Professor writes, Luke, to prep for listening to your most recent episode, I watched the two Ultraman episodes you covered and had many of the same thoughts you did. Well, you know what they say, Allen, about great minds and all that. I'm just going to put it out there, you know. Alan continues, on Oil SOS, I agreed with you that this one that this was one of the more emotionally intense episodes of the show, and the fire effects were terrific. There was also a nice composite shot of the science control ship overhead, with the team watching it fly off. My only concern was that as cool as Ultraman shooting water through his palms are, 
And as cool as I was when I did it in the shower, all right, still do it. Yeah, uh, breaking in, yeah, me too, guilty as charged. Water is not the recommended way of putting out an oil fire. Major failure on the science part of the science patrol. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. But you know, I guess what you could say is that because Ultraman is an alien, maybe it's not water. It just looks like water. Maybe it's some kind of special uh, flame-retardant liquid from the land of the light. I think that's good enough for a uh, a no-prize, right? Although he does use the water later on Jamila, but again, maybe it's close enough. I don't know. It's a good, it's a good point. And yeah, science, yeah, for the science. Alan continues, on Pearl Oyster Defense Order, or Pearl Oyster Protection Directive, depending on which dub you're looking at, I like that Fuji drove the story, even if it was based on her stereotypical, quote, womanly emotions. If you squint, maybe that can be sort of considered progress? At least she looked super cute at the end with her new jewelry. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Professor Allen, Quarterbin Podcast, Short Fox Showcase, Darkness to Light, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that uh, at this, and I, I think I talked about this during the show, that at the time when Toho was having their female report, their female characters be plucky reporters and, you know, uh, you know, giving them more roles that had more than just being, oh, she's just the girl, TV was not quite at it. So at least, like I said, it's a good point. Fuji does drive the story. Yes, it's because of her emotions and her love of pearls, but she is still the driver. She's not there just to... Uh, you know, stay back at base and run the radio or, uh, you know, something like that. She is a integral part of the team and she's an integral part of the story. So that's definitely a good point, Alan. And I, I do appreciate you, uh, you writing in and watching along with the Ultraman shows. Now, um, now folks, besides Hulu, I, and I did mention this on the other one, but just to reiterate, besides Hulu, you don't need Hulu Plus, just regular Hulu, shoutfactorytv.com also has all 39 episodes of Ultraman for you to watch for free. So if, if you're interested in checking out some Ultraman, you can go do that at ShotFactoryTV.com. They also have a, a bunch of Godzilla and Gamera movies available for free as well, which is a hoot. Now, they're all Showa-era stuff, which is uh, which is fine with me. There's no complaints there. But uh, definitely give that uh, give that a look, and you might, uh, you might be surprised what you can find on there and what you can watch totally free of charge. So... Uh, I think that's all we're going to do tonight. we got a few more emails in the bag. We'll save those for next time. And speaking of next time, this is the part of the show where we get to do a little preview of coming attractions. What is coming next on Earth Destruction Directive? Well, I talked about the show era, and because we are going to be uh, recording episode 50 next time, episode 5-0 of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast, I'm going to be taking a look at one of the all-time greatest Showa monster movies of all time. We are looking at Rodan, and uh, I am very much looking forward to this. Going to break up my Classics Media DVD, watch this one. It's been uh, a couple of years since I've watched Rodan, but this is one that I watched countless times as a kid, and I'm a huge fan of Rodan and a huge fan of this movie. In addition, we will also have the next issue of Godzilla King of the Monsters, number six from Marvel Comics, with the return of Herb Trimpey on art. Plus, we'll have any new uh, news, developments, any new merchandise coming out, all that good stuff that you've come to expect from the Fine Quality Podcast here on Earth Destruction Directive. So I'd like to say that uh, thank you all for listening. Please come back next time for Rodan. And until then, keep them stomping.
This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.